This show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now. You should get it, actually. Get it on Amazon if you want, or listen to it on Audible, or get it in an actual shop and have the experience of human interaction. What you do to get it doesn't concern me, but I don't think you should get it, because I think it will really help you with addiction and psychology in general in a way that I think is accessible and fun to read. Also, while I'm hawking stuff, come and see my Rebirth Tour. There are still a few tickets left for Brixton on December the 19th and Wolverhampton on December the 20th. Russellbrand.com go to for them. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Emma Kenny is a psychological therapist, counsellor and broadcaster whose training and experience in areas including eating disorders, PTSD, trauma, surviving abuse and relationships has seen her become a familiar face on British television. She spent 17 years working with people in crisis in some of the UK's toughest estates and runs her own therapy clinic as well as a free healthy social network that aims to help people find balance in their lives. She has two children and lives in Manchester. Emma Kenny, welcome to Under the Skin. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, Well, let's, I suppose, understand uh, your background uh, a little bit. Like, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the therapeutic work you do? I guess that my background begins when, as an adolescent, I was sent to the psychological system. So I was a regular truant and I had problems at school. And when I kind of went and saw a psychologist, what I found was I just couldn't engage. I didn't feel like they listened in a way that progressed me. And I kind of remembered thinking at the time, why can't adults speak to young people in a way that respects the fact that they are intelligent and know who they are to some degree? So I kind of thought and ruminated on it. And even though I had problems at school, I decided that was the direction I wanted to go in to actually be able to transmute my own experiences into some way of understanding other young people. So that's what got me into therapy. I did a psychology degree initially and then moved into the therapeutic context. So studying more client-centered didn't necessarily fit me because I'm quite a challenging person. I like to use challenging therapy. Well, and, and in, in, So you're a therapist, but sort of conventionally in therapy, the therapist is what men are just listen and you stick your oar in there and go, <laughs> you're mad! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the type. Um, one of the things that I've tended to do is to feel that even though there are therapies that are very challenging, but certainly client-centred isn't. So Egan and Rogers aren't necessarily. Um, So Egan and Rogers are just two of the kind of gods of client-centred therapy. But I think purism is an interesting area full stop because I kind of really struggled with it when I was training and I was really lucky at Manchester University that they kind of allowed me a bit of a freedom to express my own beliefs in what I thought I wanted therapy to be. And I kind of argued that I couldn't ever be either of those types because I'm not that person. And even when you watch therapists in action who claim to be pure, often you'll see they're not. They're doing something kind of different. So I learned in the long run, the best thing I could be in therapy was me just me so that I felt that my presence and conversation and experience with the client's journey felt really authentic and that's what's effectively worked for me. Do you think that part of the role of therapy is to discover a kind of truth a truth of the like the client's experience is that so do you think it's necessary for you to be authentic in that? I absolutely believe that authenticity is key full stop I think that we talk about authenticity as if it's quite easy to achieve. Just be yourself. It's a classic example of things that people say to you when you're growing up and when you're an adult. Just be yourself. But actually being yourself takes a huge amount of courage, a huge amount of self-discovery, a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to learn all the time. And it's quite scary. So I would say that I try to be as authentic as I can be all the time. I'm sure at times I get scared and that makes me wear a mask or I'm convinced that somebody needs me to be authoritative. So I'll put one of those and I have to work against it. But I think that's human nature to some degree. 
When Ed Stafford that was in here a couple of weeks ago, he's like an explorer survivor. Yeah, I know. He's like a bit like Bear Grylls. That's isn't it. He? I think he's the grunge Bear Grylls. That's how I see him. <laughs> he's like a sort of stripped back Bear Grylls. Love it. Um, he said that when he spends prolonged periods of time on his own, that uh, what he no, that is the aloneness itself is more challenging than the survival aspects of what he's doing because. He said that when you're in relationship with another person, you're constantly refining yourself and adjusting. And he very interestingly used these. He goes like, even there, he goes, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing if you approve of what I'm saying and all this kind of stuff. And it's like really sort of quite fascinating. So when you're like talking, when you're talking about like an, having an experience of an authentic self, it must be a difficult thing for anybody to achieve because we're responding to such a lot of stimulation, such a lot of stimuli. Absolutely. I mean, everybody seeks approval. Everybody, to some degree, wishes to be liked. But at the same time, I think my journey began when I started to feel like it was actually me wanting to please the world and get liked by everybody. It was possibly making me exhausted and I wasn't really reflecting on what I needed. And there was almost like a desire to just accept that it isn't selfish to concentrate on the self. It's selfful. And to actually strip back what I thought people wanted to know about me and wanted me to be like and to just be myself. And to some degree in my therapy, I think that's what works, that I don't feel that firstly I need to be judged by my clients and conversely I don't judge my clients either. That when we experience that thick conversation that kind of occurs as a thickness in therapy, I know that people who... What do you mean by that thickness? I think practitioners who maybe listen to this will get it. And probably people, when they're falling in love or having really, really intense relationships, yeah. it's almost like there's uh, another context to the relationship, another feeling in the room, like there's something bigger, wider, more cerebral, but almost touchable, even though it's not there. It's like a sense of knowing that this is where we're meant to be in that moment and just feeling completely connected and almost like, within a bubble of something good. I'm not saying it isn't with pain or that there isn't challenge, just that it's good. You think it's the role of the therapist then to somehow recreate what sounds to me like you're describing there, Emma, if I may say, is a kind of spiritual uh, experience that people perhaps, like, you know, the examples you use is like when you're in love with somebody, I like that, like in a non-romantic yeah. uh, context, that it, that would pop possibly a person be, be like with an imam or a rabbi or a priest or a shaman where you feel like I am being myself here. Yeah. I am present. I so think that's, that's a kind of right. dangerous place to go with people, isn't it? I think that throughout history, wherever you are in whatever culture and society, there'll always be people who, as you talked about, then have different definitions, but essentially help to navigate. I think that my job in my therapy is navigation. I'm not saying I absolutely direct the journey, but if there are treacherous waters ahead or if people keep making the same errors, it's my job, I feel, to help them engage with that process, learn, move forward and not end up in the same position, so to speak. So I don't think it's my job to tell people what to do, but I certainly think it would be without courage to listen to people constantly making the same mistakes and not encourage them to explore different avenues and to see different vantage points and that's something that I stay true to within my therapy and it's something that I think my own therapy when I was training was always the frustration I always felt like I wanted this person who was sharing the space with me to kind of fundamentally feel like they were with me I know that if you've not had therapy, you might have experienced that with your parents or your friends. There might be moments in your life where you just feel that that person's with you. You don't even need to have words. There's just a sense of being. And I used to feel a frustration that I never felt that. So potentially, if I'm looking at it on a psychological level, you know, there is a level of me wanting to create that experience for my client. Wow. Because I think that everybody in life needs to be able to replicate that. I think true happiness comes from feeling that you find others that share that space in that way and then if you have had that in therapy you can go out and when you feel it elsewhere you know it's good and you want to stick with it and that's something I think is really important to almost transplant that experience into reality for the client. I'm going to say some bold things now here come <laughs> those bold things I think 
uh, it's difficult for me to make such grand statements because I only know what it's like to be America, uh, like in America or in England or broadly speaking, sort of privileged Western democracy yeah. type places. But it seems like there's some sort of mental health crisis going on. Addiction epidemics, self-harming, eating disorders. It seems to me like sort of, uh, and you know, I know there's more information available. I'm sure there's all sorts of social factors and various contributories leading to this state. But it seems like people are crying out for some sort of connection to nature. One of the people I very much respect early guest on the show Adam Curtis says that politics is, has lost its ability to talk about feeling the way that people feel that you know politics has become sort of managerial that people say well we'll manage this for you there's no real vision of where we're going and like sort of so the great sort of in like in the last century sort of the in the great religious institutions have been challenged politics the great sort of experiments of fascism and communism broadly you know once again we can say kind of failed well certainly fascism i think it's fair <laughs> but have another look at that um so like you know like so like mental like psychiatry therapy is sort of like in a way a relatively new science and its relationship with neurology with like you know an anatomy is going to be ongoing as these connections and observations and new maps emerge but excuse me i feel that the the work that's being done in understanding how individuals feel and how groups feel is going to be vital in reforming the the way that we see ourselves the way that we participate in in society um so emma emma as you've indicated a lot of people don't have the privilege of engaging in therapy so how do people employ these principles what should we be looking for i mean i think that therapy is the ideal where you don't need it not wanting to get rid of my job but ideally com communities societies um, neighbors friends people who are around you, they can be the thing that you actually need. And it would be my ideal, you know, the Nirvana would be that we support people without the need for any of that. I think the medical model in the UK and in Western world is something that obviously has benefits to some degree, but I think we're missing this vital link. My feeling is that when I'm working with so many people who are maybe suffering from really, really severe depression and anxiety and people who have manifestations with eating disorders, for example, when I'm hearing their stories, I feel that compassion and empathy and time and nurture and a real engagement with getting to know the dysfunction and then recognising the function from within that dysfunction is what's required. But that takes a huge amount of time when we're looking at it in the therapeutic context. Money, as you noted, because the NHS is really burdened you know anybody out there who thinks that practitioners aren't trying to do a good job it isn't that it's just the amount of people who genuinely need that care aren't receiving it and when you get that practitioner they're working with high level crisis so you're not kind of doing the early intervention so for me the bigger question is how can we as a society start to be more compassionate to people around us that's the big thing for me I always make an effort to get my to know my neighbours. It's a northern thing. It's a working class thing. But it's an annoying thing. <laughs> Some northerner over the fence <laughs> bothering you. Right, I'm going to be living here now, soldier. Right, let, let me interfere in your business. I'm also a trained therapist. Now, notice you're not communicating very well with your wife, are you? <laughs> Obviously, that would be one way of doing it. But, you know, that kind of thing that I think we have this immeasurable opportunity in society to make ourselves more healthy. You said things like going outside and even when you're working with people in despair, one of the big things that you want to do is look at their diet, look at their exercise regime, look at how often they get outside, look at who they socialize with, because human beings are human and they're social animals. And if they haven't got access to any of those things, and they're not eating efficiently and they're not exercising at all. That's manifesting more problems. So helping people to decrease construct is one of the things I would say you don't need a therapist to explore how to impact on your life more positively through food or through the amount of exercise you give yourself or the white light that you get on your skin or the times that you knock on your neighbor's door and ask for a cup of tea they're things that are within reach to everybody even people who have low socioeconomic standards can still afford to eat better if that makes sense yeah like uh, you're just uh, what interests me about the work that you do is you see that on this podcast a lot of 
it's very cerebral. Now I know like mm. you're sort of a qualified clinician. So like, you know, like I'm not uh, like I recognize that you can also communicate on that level, but say, you know, when we're talking to people that are uh, as it were conventional academics, it's very like you, you feel the weight and freight of their experience and study. Um, but when I'm like, for example, like one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, cause I do uh, a degree religion in, uh, in global politics. So as a university, when I'm sitting and like someone's unpacking the, um, Upanishads for me or Vedic literature, what I'm always thinking and probably is affecting my ability to learn is how does this relate to me now? Like, you know, me now, how do I apply that? If this doesn't apply to my experience of being human, then I, I don't care, you know, like, and. You know, like I know a lot of people will listen to this podcast where mental health is probably the thing that's uppermost. I know there's a lot of people listen to these things for self-betterment. They want to learn. They want to know more stuff. But I think a lot of people are like, right, yeah, I'm not happy. And like sort of self-harm, eating disorders, drinking too much, taking too much drugs, feeling alienated, feeling lost. And like something like, you know, going to a next door neighbor and asking for a cup of tea. Like it says something about the kind of society we're living in that that's bloody sounds like quite a radical thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, it does feel like that for lots of people because we've kind of become so disassociated from, to some degree, what makes us happy. I also think we spend a lot of time trying to avoid difficult feelings because we've been told that difficult feelings are something we should run from or feel ashamed of or challenge in a way by using alcohol or drugs or sex or anything that helps us escape those feelings. For me, I did that for years, you know? I ran away from all of the feelings that essentially I needed to confront so that I could work through them and find what I feel is a piece with the part of me that I think I felt was dark. And it's not dark, it's just human. But before I can reach others, I have to reach into myself. I have to feel that connection with myself. So the reason I can ask now, and I ask people for what I need, is because I know that I have enough resources within myself to manage whether they reject me or otherwise. Mm. And that's something that's given me a real freedom. How did you get there? Through accepting that I was never, ever going to find what I wanted through the avenues that I was seeking them in, you know, hedonism and having all of those areas of my world that I thought were bringing me happiness, but that were so temporary and momentary that they really gave me, I suppose, what you were saying earlier on, like that spiritual connection, that sense of... I like the fact that I think I'm really this tiny little dot in infinity, but that that's amazingly miraculous. And that this moment, this blink of an eye of my consciousness is mind blowing and taking it and reframing it from that perspective has been incredibly helpful. Firstly, because it gives me a humility where I know that as long as I do as little harm, I hope I've done a decent job. And go on, go on. Little harm? You can't just go into a therapy session with, right, I'm going to do as little damage in here <laughs> as possible. If I get out of here, just give them one smack in the mouth. I'm going to consider it. Um, uh, um, how do I, like, see, I understand what you're saying about sort of like, uh, you know, the sort of the miracle of being and mm. the acceptance that it's difficult to resolve mm. yourself outside of yourself. How did you get there, though? How did you get from being an adolescent who was a truant and yeah. sort of inferred that hedonism played its part in yeah. your journey? How did you become disillusioned with like hedonism yeah. How, and who is it that reached you? Cause you said you were initially, you were not uh, like you didn't feel satisfied with the therapeutic yeah. experiences you had as a teenager. What you must, I'm guessing have had some kind of satisfying experience of therapy. Um, at some point. Really a lot of it was to do with the self work that I did. So many years ago, not that I do this now, I kind of became quite intrigued with things like the runic alphabet and using things like an overview of a runic experience every day. I started writing to myself, journaling myself, learning that actually it was okay to make mistakes. One of the big things that I used to do was go to bed and overanalyze every single conversation that I'd had for fear that I would have offended somebody. And oh, then yeah, I get that. everything, honestly, every day it was exhausting. And then I learned that actually, you know what, it really doesn't matter unless there was intent there. Like, I might offend people, I might upset people, I might at times hurt people, but my intention is not to. Accepting that I can't always be responsible for another human being's pain or resolve or journey, and instead that all I can do is be with them on it, even if they reject me or if they accept me, that's the journey of life. That's it. 
that's what I'm here for. I think having children was a big awakener. When you say, what was it? You know, 15 years ago, I had a baby. And everything I thought had meaning just totally transformed. Like, all I believed until then was that there was this big search in life, that there was this huge search for something, for anything, this thing that filled this gap. I'm not suggesting that everyone runs off and has a baby. But the minute I held him, like I'd had no maternal experience or feelings, I got pregnant because I was told I couldn't have children. So one, I had always lived a life where if you told me I couldn't do something, I would find a way to do it. That's still a philosophy I kind of live my life by. But I had fertility treatment. I had a baby. I held him and I was blown away because there was this magnificence of being and an ordinary, ordinary miracle, just an everyday thing that people do all the time. But he changed everything. Like he made me the best version of, version of myself. He made me realize I was far more compassionate and patient than I even knew I had those resources to be. And both of my children have consistently reminded me that I have an abundance of love that I never even knew I could tap into. And everybody finds something eventually. Some people find exercise. Some people find nature. Some people find friendship. For me, motherhood. Motherhood was it. You did, Thank you. you have, uh, while you, you said some things that are about, in a way, embracing convention and identity because i've had a similar experience or i'm having because it's quite new for me still a similar experience as a parent that's like certainly disrupting my self-centeredness <laughs> uh, i'm trying to stick to the self-centeredness but there's someone there's several people in the house won't allow <laughs> but you also earlier in it you talked about sort of like you know what again as i say like often when i'm like talking uh, like academics and stuff in here, if like runic letters or the I Ching come up, right, people would be like, you can clear off. Because this is like, a, like, you know, we live in a culture that don't really like to recognise sort of folk, um, you know, I guess, I don't know, folk history and mm. something I'm becoming more and more interested in. And I know that, so again, given that you're a, 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 a psychotherapist, like, the, it's interesting, isn't it, that, like, I'm fascinated by Carl Jung. I'm fascinated with his intrigue with, like, Kundalini Yoga and the I Ching and ways of dealing with the mystery. Because, let's face it, the unknown is where we all get to. I was listening to um, sort of a, a debate between, uh, or a conversation, I suppose, between Sam Harris, the sort of atheist uh, and a sort of neurologist and sort of, pundit and and richard dawkins and they were talking about how you know it's like the sort of the beauty of the theory of evolution and it's certainly sort of it's magnificent it is, the way yeah. it's unpacked our understanding of sort of the material evolution of you know some like you know great masterpiece and the determining ideas of like of all time but like of course it like he says that you know we did we can we don't know how it begins or how it can begin this moment of inception so at some point you know like we all have to interface with the unknown and and i i suspect and i sort of feel like i know that there are limitations for our capacities as human beings to hold knowledge but knowledge is potential for knowledge is infinite capacity for understanding is finite there's going to be faith is going to be required a way of dealing with the unknowable is going to be a requirement now like when if we have a type of culture that prohibits that because it's seen as woo woo or sort of like i think actually one of the things that i'm sensing is it's sort of a part of this is to do with patriarchy and misogyny the oppression of the female principle of the flow of things you know maleness is a kind of a self-contained idea in a way the femininity as it relates to creativity both biologically and you know sort of socially is a sort of a there i sense i'm being very basic here but there's this kind of a flow to the idea of femininity i wonder uh how this principle like how men can embrace their own femininity and how the feminine principle being brought into life and like the sort of these these ideas of connectedness that you talk about uh, how, how, what do you think is their significance and how can we learn more and how can we enact them? I think that for men, this modern age is a confusing one. I think there have been so many changes. There's so much more androgyny. Women, obviously and rightfully so, are at least getting to a point where there is more equality 
there's certainly not equality, but in the Western world, there is more equality. I think that the thing that men need to acknowledge is that firstly, they're human animals and the need for connection is absolutely instinctual. It's not about them being weak because they need somebody to support them when they vocalize their pain and men just don't vocalize their pain as often as they should that's why it kills them that's why suicide is such a high rate in men under 40 for example we know this but actually taking that step that brave step to say I'm in pain to say I don't know what to do to say I'm confused with all these stereotypes and schemas about what a man should be to me when you become at one with yourself, male or female, you recognize the very thing that you need as a human is to just say, I'm a mess. I'm a mess sometimes. And within that mess is something incredibly beautiful and masterpiece based. I tell all my clients and particularly the men who struggle with the authenticity and the ability to just say I'm in pain and to not know what to do is to acknowledge that that's a completely generic feeling. That's the human condition. If anybody tells me they know exactly why they're here and they know exactly what they're doing, then I think that they're not being honest with themselves. I think, in fact, it's the wonder of not knowing that makes life the journey that becomes the potential to make everything that you experience in this world feel that it has something more guttural, more cerebral, as you said, like there's something more. I don't know what that is and it's okay. It's the not knowing of knowing to some degree. So what do men need to do? I think they need to trust themselves more. They need to trust that you don't need to have the answers to find a way and that there'll be people around you who will offer you that spark of support and that the only way that we can start that is when we give permission to each other to follow that through. So for every man to give another man that permission and for every woman to meet that permission with care and compassion, because it's not just a male thing. If we want our men to be protective leaders, then it's very difficult for them to be weak and vulnerable. Likewise, women want to be leaders as well. But at the same time, the androgen is confusing us. And I think that that's why we're having so many of these problems, because it's a very simple process. Acknowledge how you feel. Tell somebody, vocalise it, receive the support, work on that support and move forward. It's not an A to B experience, but it's certainly a place that begins the change. We need to connect more. We choose not to. It's a choice. Everything's a choice. That's what we're choosing to do. We're choosing not to. We're in a Tinder world, a throwaway world, a world where actually deep connection is something that's almost becoming avoided just mm. because there is so much able connection that isn't really with meaning those things are compromising us as human beings you know we used to be this kind of really small group of people as you were knowing you know who did use things like divination things that kind of made sense to them and in their community that worked effectively we see that in the past and yet for some reason with materialism and capitalism and as you said the politics and let's be honest a place where it doesn't serve us to care for people because that's the wider discussion, isn't it? It doesn't serve people who are doing well to some degree to care for those who are not. And yet the answer is there. Mm. That's the answer. And everyone who really thinks about it can see that. Isn't it curious how on a sort of a very a basic level things like eat the food that's in season in the place where you're living is like a, it's sort of good for you. It's sort of like it's sort of like there's a sort of a little code that's all there exactly. taking place. You know, if the food's not in season, it's having to be transported. It won't be good for you. Like so, I wonder if there is an analogy with, like you said, with compassion and uh, and, and sort of uh, subtler forms of feeling. And I wanted to ask you uh, about sex and sexuality, both as a therapist. And as a mother, both your sons boys, teenagers. Yeah, teenagers, both You've got two teenage boys. So, how do you, um, like, you're a therapist? You presume so, like, <laughs> like oh, gender and sex. You know, like, they, we're going, we're going through a time where yeah. all of this stuff is being sort yeah. of repoed and re-examined. And so, like, but look, as a mother of two sons who are presumably at a point where these kind of ideas are integral, how do you? Uh, what kind of instruction, what kind of, how do you see your role? 
I mean, my role as a mum since day one is to have conversations with them about everything. And I mean it. I don't care who judges me for that. I don't care who judges me because at the end of the day, I'll talk to them about porn. I'll talk to them about what a girl will want on the first day and what she definitely won't want. I talk about the political standards that are given to women as far as their objectification of their bodies, the sexualization of young girls, the expectations young girls put on themselves. I constantly tell them that they are essentially the future generation of young men and that they have to consistently accept that women, girls are equals. And I'm absolutely honest. I mean, Russell, I'm so honest, you know, they know what porn is. They know why porn exists. They know what that does some degree to women. And they accept that the things that they see, if they see them, that's not real. That's not what we're looking for in good relationships. Whatever you want in a relationship is great. Whatever suits your fancy, that's okay in a loving, committed, connected relationship or at least in a mutually respectful relationship. Emma, do you think then that por- the, that porn is to sex what an action movie is to life? And yeah. like, and, and if so, because I've started to think of porn as a very sort of toxic and dangerous thing and I have a, like a relationship with it that's a bit... Like, you know, I find it hard to not look at pornography. Yeah, sure. And I, like, it's one of the things where I think I don't, shouldn't look at porn. Porn is bad. But like, if you're like, but you're sort of, are you less puritanical about yeah. that kind of thing? I don't think that porn is, <clears throat> is necessarily bad because I think that it has a place in our culture. You know, we're obsessed with bodies. We like watching people have sex. We like the fact that people have different interactions and fantasy is really important. And particularly for men and women who like to have visual stimulus when they happen to masturbate, that can be really, really helpful for them what i don't like about porn is it consistently places the woman on the whole as a submissive and it also suggests that women like certain things that i've never met a client particularly who likes the fact that 15 men are going to come on their face i have to say that's not something that the average woman wants but that kind of footage is viewed again and again and again do you think that must be that men when looking at pornography that 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 fear must be a component i'm guessing if 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 porn needs to demonstrate men as being powerful it seems to me that it might be catering for the fact that men feel Mm. impotent and powerless it's trying to redress that so there's a an a bias in pornography to men yeah. being powerful because in effect men feel powerless and impotent and afraid. I think that's a really good way of describing it. And I feel almost like there's an underlying rage within porn when I see some of it, you know, when I constantly look online to see kind of what is being mirrored out there at the moment, you know, so what expectations are being formed when 15-year-old boys and girls are looking at the expectations and what they should want in relationships or in one night stands or whatever. I feel this like rage that it's almost like we have to abuse her. We have to destroy her to some degree. She has to enjoy it, even though it's not clearly enjoyable. And that concerns me, but it also suggests that there is some kind of change in the way that we are playing out our sexual fantasies i want people to realize that whatever your fantasy that's okay as long as it is respectful as long as the other person is privy and party to that and willing to be within that fantasy itself i don't think anybody should be afraid of exploring it i constantly teach my clients that shame is the worst thing you can have in sex. And one of the things about porn is I think that's a big part of it, that same rage and shame that we almost play out these things on screen that are uncomfortable. Why does shame find its way into sexuality? Because we're, sh- because we're shamed of our sexuality early in life. I think that we are taught shame so much in our society. I think from day one, you are told that sex is bad. You can only do it at this age. You should only do it for this reason. You should only do it with this protection, that you kind of have this rhetoric already. But then at the same time, because we don't just have these really open, honest conversations when kids are growing up, you know, how often does somebody go into a classroom and talk honestly about sex, talk honestly about relationships, talk honestly about how good it is and how bad it can be so that you've kind of got rid of any need for the shame and you've engaged with everybody in a way that they can acknowledge they don't need to feel stupid or embarrassed or humiliated we form those norms because our mates at school are kind of making us feel that what we're doing if we're having sex is promiscuous or what we're doing if we don't have sex is frigid those kind of conversations occur because adults aren't guiding them like how do we help kids grow into young men and women who love sex and embrace it for what it is and feel no shame 
We do it by just being honest with them. And people are horrified about that. I'll talk about it on TV. I'll say, let's just start educating them from day one. And people think you're stealing childhood. But you're not stealing childhood. You're creating solid adults who can become well-adjusted in the way that they feel about sex. How can you do that sort of with a group? Because like, I suppose the reason that there's the, the, the suggestion, oh, you're stealing childhood, is because it's like these children are not interested in sex and you're imposing it on them. You know, it's, a, it's an argument that's played totally out a lot, isn't that. it? Yeah. Normally it's sort of like around, in a way, enforcing and establishing norms around types of sexuality, isn't it? Like, you know, Clause 28 being a famous example of like, oh, don't teach kids that homosexuality is normal because otherwise they'll find out that it's normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. like, um, so uh, so I suppose, the, the, how do you teach a group, like a group of children? Because presumably there are like, you know, ch- like children that have different expectations, levels of curiosity around sexuality. How can, how can you teach it? I think that you teach it early, really, really early. I mean, I think, honestly, five years old onwards, I'm not talking about having sex at five years old. I'm talking about what sex is, how you arrive, why you're born. That starts the beginning of the conversation. Would you be led by when kids, because presumably, when when I was thinking about it before you was answering, I was thinking, right, when I would teach my kid about sex would be when the kid asks, right? No, I wouldn't talk about it when they ask because children are full of fear. Children, I think that, so many adults forget to look back to how it was. You know, I can remember clearly when I was four and five years old, I used to suffer from really terrible tics as a child. Like, I had really, really bad tics. What, what do you mean? Twitching about? Oh, terrible, terrible tics. What, what tics did you have? Um, every single one of them from blinking, neck, neck kind of gurning. What do you um, think that is? Um, it was anxiety. It was a physicalised anxiety. anxiety. I didn't want to feel itself. it. I didn't want to feel anxiety, really? so I used tics to manifest that. And it was because I was so aware of everybody else's judgment around me. People would say things to me and I would be like, I remember a guy saying to my dad, oh, she's such a bonny girl. That was it, I was fat. I was five and I've looked back on those times and always transplanted the recognition that these kids out there, that everyone thinks are just these naive little players in life, mm. they're not. They're, they're hypersensitive. amazingly hypersensitive and they're having these conversations and they're worried about friendships and they haven't a clue why the world's working the way that it's working. But you know what you can do? You can make them feel so safe. Adults can make kids feel so safe. When I was working on projects where the young people had had no education, where they were involved in the criminal justice system, where people had completely given up on them, the first job that I had was to make my boys and girls feel safe because it was a feeling that everyone assumes people know, but very few people really know. Right, how do you do it? By being authentic is number one by reassuring them that they're okay, even when some of their actions are not okay, that fundamentally within them there is an okayness, that we can find that and we can manifest it and that they can move forward. My boys and girls, and I say my boys more than my girls because about 80% of my boys came to the project, about 20% were girls. What is they, these projects? You so on? I ran um, crime concern projects, I ran co- college projects. It was PRUs, pupil referral units. So when kids had failed in mainstream education, they would come to me, but they would come to me after they'd failed in a mainstream PRU. So I got the PRU, PRU kids. And I remember... These are the dregs! I remember my life... 30,000! It's I, the lowest of the low. That's where I'd have wound up. Yeah. Well, I remember, like, those times with summer. I Honestly, in my head, it's summer. Um, I still keep in contact with some of the young people, if I'm honest. It's a long time since I worked on those projects. But what I recognised immediately was that they hated me when they first got. They hated me. They were like one. Because you were the figure of well, they called I was called posh bitch, was number one, even though I'm not a working class, but my accent was different to theirs. But it was okay. Also, there's a scowl. Yeah. Like yeah. If, you're, if you've like been kicked out yeah. of the thing that you get go to when you're kicked out of things... You might you're like Audrey Hepburn yeah. after Rex Harrison as my fair lady. <laughs> but you know what, Russell, that was the key. The key to me was one, always being myself, always using the opportunity to inspire, not to take away my boys, particularly had had their self-esteem eradicated to such a degree that at nine years old, they weren't in the classroom. They were sent outside to play. They didn't know how to read and write. At 13, 14, 15, 16, if you can't read and write, you don't feel like you belong you don't have access. No, you must be well shamed it's in an horrible, academic environment. Horrible. And that's the other thing. When you talk about academia as well, academia is amazing. People are really bright. 
they seek out and soothe themselves with that area of expertise and it's brilliant but at the same time it creates a elite my boys would look at people in education even people with GCSEs let alone doctorates and professorships they would see an us and them my whole experience in life with my clients with the young people i had the privilege to work with with my children i want it to be us and us i want it to feel like there is no difference we are human therefore we're equal i may know this and you may know that but there is something intrinsic i say to every single client that i have when they're questioning themselves mother nature as you brought up nature before and everybody has their own opinions on this personally i think nature has an answer for absolutely everything i think she's incredibly bright and she knows exactly what she's doing and why she's doing it whether we see those solutions or choose to ignore them whether politically we're allowed to have those solutions or have them withheld from us that's a difference in that suggestion you know but one thing i know is that every single human being out of all these billions of people have one fingerprint I don't for one minute believe that mother nature decided to give every single human being a marking so unique to them that there wasn't reason and purpose. I teach every single child that I ever work with, every client, you were marked. You were marked with something that stands you out from every other person. Finding it is the issue. Finding it. That's beautiful. Uh, I think uh, that that word communicator, it means create community isn't yes it? create connection create absolutely togetherness. so you're good at doing that then it was this thing so how'd you get rid of them terrible ticks which is a phrase that when it first came out i'm sure caused some <laughs> consternation in an audio, audio medium that might be a new channel four show actually that terrible whole time ticks. terrible ticks presented by emma kenny with her several ticks don't do yourself down i am higher in the terrible ticks show <laughs> i am still have my ticks where's your where are you? I control them. How? By Sometimes what, I go to the toilet and I go a bit like that for a bit. I still have my tics. I what have my neck tics. What do you think tic. it is? Um, it's physicalised anxiety. So I'm quite, I would say, I don't really feel low. I don't really feel anxious, but I'm aware that like anybody, I have a certain amount of stresses and strains in my world and my life. So my brain kind of just goes, ah, oh, just give yourself a bit of a neck twitch. That's better than feeling the anxiety. <laughs> do one of the old twitches. And I do. You know what? I can still remember my mum when I was like seven years old. And I was quite a cute little kid with blonde pigtails. My mum was working class, but, you know, a really, really great mother. And she would put my hair in pigtails. She'd put me in a red coat. She always coordinated everything. We didn't have a lot, but she made a real effort. Me and my sister would look like we were kind of quite well-to-do kids, you know, walking down the road. And then I would cough, do my neck, do my leg, throw my shoulders out, and she would just look at me with absolute despair. Do you think there was a correlation between those two things? With what? her dulling you up all nice and you twitching your way out like some little punk i think that back in the day i didn't know how to verbalize my pain and at the time there were certain things in my life that felt painful and that was a way of using my body to express my sadness i'm only learning now quite late in life how like i've been a person too much in the intellect and the body is where so much happens you've got to get into your body yes Mm. Yes, that's a big thing for me. That has been a huge learning curve for me. I used to analyse everything. I used to feel that I had to work out every intrinsic piece and cellular experience that I had. And it created so much noise and volume. And what I've learned to do more recently is find this acceptance of silence and switching off and allowing myself to kind of meditate on how my body feels, like how my body feels, not how my mind is. Mm. And it's been so soothing mm. and so helpful. It's a big part of mindfulness, of course, isn't it? And like I am... Um... Like do jujitsu, and I'm probably one of the best people at it in the world. <laughs> I do like this like one hour a week of it, but it's like this one hour where I like um, body. Yeah, I'm in my body, and like sort of I'm physically close to another man. Yes, it's wrestling. It's sort of like it's. Uh, I love it. What you said before about sex. That is probably a really good way of describing how the perfect sexual encounter is. It's when you're not in your head. It's yeah. when you're fully engaged with your body, when you see yourself as playing and having pleasure and getting pleasure and having no shame and just allowing yourself the experience, whether that's in a one-night stand or a long-term committed relationship, and it's possible and it's practical, but you have to work through all of that volume and get to a position where you accept your body 
before yes. you can move forward. So how do you like you know, to, to to return to a point that we uh, like we we started, but then you said terrible ticks, and then <laughs> then you went off into social experimentation, uh, like you know, like introducing the, the subject of sexuality to children. You said don't wait for them to ask about it; mm. start introducing it. So can you, how? Just have conversations with them. You know, from a very early age, I started to talk about the anatomy of my body with my children. I was a single mum for quite a long time. So as a single mum, I had one bathroom in my home, which meant that my children always saw me naked. So I started to have conversations with them about my body so that they understood what my boobs were, what my vagina was. They still laugh at the word vagina because we really had fun back in the day discussing all of those things, the differences about their bodies, then how they came about, why they existed, then what sex was and why it was and why sex is something that they should want one day enjoy and always feel that I'm the person that they can come and converse with about that. Both my boys are 13 and 15. I don't know how I created them. They're a lot better than I probably deserve, if I'm really honest. You know, they're great kids. But one of the things that strikes me about them is their emotional intelligence and they do not have fear. They do not have the fear that I had about asking. You know, my son will talk to me about porn. He'll talk to me about the fact that his friends are talking about sex. He'll have conversations with me about them. And it's so, so reassuring because it was simple. It was simple. I just made the communication clear that there was no shame, no embarrassment. It was open. I think, like, uh, it's... Because one imagines that well, no, you know that a child's going to go into an environment where, like, you know, a moment ago we were talking about the kind of what exists in the world of porn, the kind of access that young men, boys, yeah. and girls are going to have to pornography that is giving them some, you know, curious, unusual, and my assumption is dangerous messages. I, I, how is your like? How do you feel as a therapist, as a mother, as Emma Kenny, the human being? But how how is like a sort of a natural understanding of sex, sex as joy, consensual, loving adult play where we communicate? Yeah. How, like, how is it going to survive that kind of institutional deviation? I fully believe that human beings know how to find their way. I have a hope consistently. People say, "How do you work?" In certain circumstances, for example, with sexual abuse or with murdered children, you know, things like that, that people would really struggle to work with. How do you work with it? And it's because I always have a sense of hope. My belief system is hope orientated. I think that no matter how much you present people with these caricatures, these caricatures of sexuality, these caricatures of having sex on screen in such a way that very few people would ever want to encounter... In the end, we don't want it. We desensitise ourselves to it and we move on. I hope that women, if porn continues to hold itself in our society, as it seems to be doing, I hope that women start to feel that they should be involved in directing and creating because fantasy is lost. There is no fantasy in that. It's so physical and mechanical. There has to be something deeper. Can I ask a question? Like, because you hear this, um, like that idea of like, of course, that is a, a one vision of female empowerment mm. is women being involved in the creation of pornography. But in a sense, isn't that a sort of a co-opting of femininity mm. into a male environment? Because like, you know, when you sort of, when one sees, say, you know, it, Theresa May being prime minister, is that good for feminism? Margaret Thatcher being prime minister. Now, of course, it's good that women are in politics, but I feel like, like it's not actually doing the job that we're trying to do of no. like have a, mm. a, a... I would second that. I would yeah. second that. Don't get me wrong. I would much rather what we have in our society is a far better relationship with sex. It's as simple as that. I wish that every young person growing up and every adult could learn early on to feel that their body is an incredible tool, that's something they can really relate to, they can enjoy, that we could have experiences in society where people can go to lessons and actually have sessions with people where they can really construct an identity with their sexuality, where there is correct help for people who unfortunately have horrible sexual experiences you know the statistic is harrowing one in six children are sexually abused before the age of 16 one in four girls one in eight boys that's real so people are growing up with a dysfunctional identity towards sex so a lot of it is the unraveling and when you say about porn 
porn kind of volumizes the negatives as well. And I kind of wish that there was more regulation around that because I think you're never going to get rid of porn. But I'd like to see women as equal players because you get these really kind of stereotypical vibes about what women should want. And it's turning the... I always say, I know this sounds awful, but I, I say to people when I'm talking about sex, you know, if I'm talking to younger people, don't expect anal sex and fisting when you have sex for the first time. That's not what women want and it's not what you should feel you're pressured to do. But if you're watching this kind of stuff and that's your learning experience, you absolutely think that that's a potential in the room scenario. What pressure for guys? What pressure for girls? So to some degree, it's the regulation. But will that ever happen? Of course not, because it makes a lot of money and money will always be the bigger winner in life. It's extraordinary the way we have to incorporate these external influences and and what is governing the flow of what is normal, what's determining normality. It's interesting when something comes up as a, a, a bolder word in a podcast as fisting. <laughs> Sorry. Not, like, so no, so no, not at all. Please don't apologise for it. Because like I, I recognize, like, I, I once heard about when there was earlier attempts to regulate the pornographic content that fisting was one of the things that they looked at without considering the role that that plays in non-heterosexual communities Mm. and like so like so regulation can often be used as a tool to normalize and i suppose like when we're having open conversations about what sex is what sex should be that it's very important that that remains open and inclusive Mm. and non-judgmental about different types of sexuality and the thing that i heard that made most sense to me was consent 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 who can't give consent children animals mentally ill people yeah i think though that the whole porn area is one of those places that could have purpose if that makes sense could be something that could inspire us could be something that could free us and allow us our fantasies but to some degree the fact that a lot of people feel intense shame watching porn plays into that dark psyche anyway so i would like to see more people just normalizing the conversations around sex about talking about their preferences about expressing their fantasies without fear i think there's so much fear built up within the sexual arena Emma Kenny, thank you very much because I think communication is going to be vital in all areas of mental health, all forms of human expression, verbal and sexual. And it feels to me like the way that we relate to our feelings, the way that we relate to forms of expression is vital in this time of disjunct, in this time of fissure, separation, conflict in so many fields like that, you know, to once again find union between people. and And that can only, I suppose, start with communication what an incredible a journey it's been it seems for you from uh, uh, a truant <laughs> to a great communicator ticking truant ticking truant <laughs> to C- congruent communicator uh, uh, oh right what a journey that's a, I think you should have your own podcast and uh, that should be the strap that's right sex talk obviously would be the title with Emma Kenny but the strap from, what was that from ticking, <laughs> ticking truant to congruent, to congruent communicator. communicator brilliant I'd listen thank you so much thanks for coming <laughs> thanks on thanks for having me thank you Emma thank you This show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is a good book, and it's available now. You can order it on Amazon if you want to. You can also get the audio book on Audible. Do it. It makes a good Christmas gift, an ideal Christmas gift. Think about your family. Oh, what shall I get them? Get them that. Or if maybe you're Muslim, what shall I get them just to show that I'm participating in seasonal festivities whenever? Get them that. Or maybe you're an atheist. Get them that. It doesn't even actually matter what you believe in. Also, come see me on my rebirth tour. Brixton, December the 19th. Wolverhampton, December the 20th. You can go to russellbrand.com for tickets there. Finally, if you like this show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. And just give it five stars because uh, it's good for my sense of self. All right. Well, bye-bye. Thanks.